Let's pray and let's ask God to show up and do his work, which is much more important. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for each one of the people here and their commitment to you and their commitment to this church and to be in this place. So Lord, now I pray as we open up your word that we would look at it as an act of worship, that we would recognize who you are, that you are great and mighty to be praised and that you also have a word for us this morning. So Lord, I pray that you'd open up our ears so that we can hear our eyes, so that we can see and that your spirit would fill us with his strength and power so that we can do. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So we've been going real hard in the book of Titus. We have been covering a lot of different topics. You know, we've been in this kind of topical series in Titus. Titus has been picking the topics for us. And this past week, I kind of looked at all the topics we've covered so far in the book of Titus. So I'd like to show them to you. These are the topics that we've covered so far in Titus. Self-control, eternal life, preaching, blamelessness, faithfulness, parenting, sex, being overbearing, anger, use of alcohol, money, time, technology. That is a lot of topics that we've covered in the last few months in this book of Titus. And if that's not enough, next week, Jim is going to talk about food. So we've talked, we've looked in the book of Titus as to what God has to say about these particular topics. And God has had something to say about each of these topics. He has given us some clear instruction. He's given us guidance. He's given us some encouragement in regards to each of these topics. And we've learned that if we deviate from God's instruction, if we deviate from God leading in these areas, that there's going to be a problem. We're going to experience some problems because that's sin. And sin always results in some kind of pain or hurt or difficulty. But we've also heard that if we, if, if, if we follow God's leading in these areas, if we obey Jesus in what he has to say to us, that we're going to experience blessing. We're going to experience life and freedom and peace. That's because God's way of living is just better. But also this week, what became striking to me about this list is that there's a real difference in the way God views each of these topics compared to the way the world views each of these topics, or better said, the people of the world view each of these topics. There is a big difference in God's view of these things in how we should interact or do or how we should, what we should say and the way the world says we can interact with these things. Think about, think about like eternal life. Jesus says he came so that we might have eternal life if we believe in him. In contrast, the world says, yeah, this is all there is. Or maybe there's eternal life, but that's open to everyone no matter what they believe. Or how about, how about sex? God has the creator, God created, he designed sex and he says that it's beautiful but he limits it to be between a husband and a wife. The world? Man, yeah, sex is great in wherever and with whomever you'd like, just so you're not hurting anyone and everybody's willing, engage in sex all you want. Or how about money? Oh, money. 
That one hits home, doesn't it? Money, God says the money is his. The world says, no, 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 the money is ours. And we can do with that money whatever we choose to do with it. We can live in bigger houses. We can buy better cars. We can engage in extravagant living. See, there's a big difference between God's view and the world's view. Which raised a question for me this past week. And it's a question I'm now going to ask you. And I'd like you to answer the question. I'd like you to answer the question for yourself. I don't want you to look over at your wife and tap her. I don't want you to look at your husband. I don't want you to tap your friend and say, hey, 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 this one's for you or your son or your daughter or your mom or your dad or your friend. No, 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 no. You. The question's for you. When you look at this list of things, And when you recognize that God views these things differently than the world views these things, the question I want you to ask yourself is, are you really any different from the world? Do you think differently about these things than the world thinks about these things? Do you think differently than the people you go to school with think about these things? Do you think differently than the people that you go to work with think about these things? Or do you just, for all intents and purposes, think in exactly the same way? Do you think differently? Do you act differently? Do you believe differently? Are you really any different than the world around you? And I don't think this is such an unreasonable question. There are a number of polls that say that Christians really aren't any different than non-Christians. In fact, this past week I came across a poll. It was troubling. Actually, it was disturbing. It was disturbing and it was troubling. The poll indicated the poll indicated that less than half of U.S. evangelical Christians would identify themselves as pro-life. Which means more than half of U.S. evangelical Christians identify themselves as pro-choice. That is troubling. That is a troubling poll, and it is troubling because it is so wrong. It seems, in so many cases, that Christians are just like everybody else. Are you just like everybody else? Because as followers of Jesus... God commands us to be different. In fact, he commands us to be distinctly different. So take your Bibles and turn to Titus, and we're going to be in Titus chapter 1. At least we're starting in Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, it's found on page 966 in the Bible that the church provides. That's in the rack in front of you. If you do not have a Bible, grab that Bible, please, and follow along with me. 
And let's see what God has to say to us this morning. In past weeks, Titus has been picking our topics. Titus is going to pick our topic again today. Titus chapter one, verse eight. Paul here is talking about the qualifications for elders in the church. Look what he writes, verse eight. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. This morning, our focus is on being upright and holy. This is a list of qualifications for elders, but it's Paul's intention additionally that this would be seen, that these lists, these qualifications would be seen as goals for each one of us as well. So God has a goal for you, he has a goal for me to be upright and to be holy. Now usually, when we think of holiness, we think of moral purity, and that's true. Purity is part of being holy, but the idea of holiness is never limited to the idea of purity. You see, the primary meaning of holy is separate. So write that down. If you're taking notes, write down holy means to be separate. It comes from an ancient word that means to cut or to separate. It's the idea of being distinct distinctly different. As followers of Jesus, we are called to be distinctly different. The first recorded call to be distinctly different in the Bible was made to a man named Abram. Abram was called by God to be distinctly different. Look what God says to Abram. The Lord has said to Abraham, Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. In verse two, God promises Abram a land. He promises him a blessing. But in order to get to the blessing, Abraham has to leave his country, he has to leave his people, and he even has to leave his family. In a time when this type of exile could be considered a judgment worse than death, Abraham is called by God God to make a change in his life, a change in his life that will set him apart, that will separate him, that will make him distinctly different from all of those people around him. He will have to leave everything he knows. He will have to go to a place that is foreign to him. He will be in a place where he is not welcome, where people do not care about him. God is calling Abraham to be distinctly different. And Abraham does it. Abram does it. And God recognizes it and changes his name to Abraham, which means father of many. Abram becomes Abraham and receives the blessing of God. But don't miss the fact that there was a cost. There was a cost that Abram had to pay to become Abraham and to receive the blessing of God. He had to leave. He had to leave his culture. He had to leave his society. He had to leave everything that he had known and was comfortable with to receive the blessing of God. He lived his life as a sojourner, as a traveler, as a foreigner in every land in which he visited. 
He lived the life that Augustine, the fourth century church father, referred to as the life of a resident alien. Abraham was distinctly different. Abraham was holy. Have we as followers of Jesus been as faithful to the call to be distinctly different? Jesus makes the exact same call on each of our lives. If you claim Jesus as Lord and Savior, Jesus has a call on your life to be distinctly different. Have we been faithful to that call? Jesus is pretty uncompromising. Look what Jesus says. This is from Matthew. I'm going to show you three verses from Matthew, three quotes. Jesus' words, not my words. Look what Jesus says. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Separate, distinctly different than the culture around us. This is Jesus' call on you and on me. Look at this next one. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. There is not many verses that are more countercultural than that verse. Deny yourself. How many people out in the world are denying themselves? People in the world are claiming that they need to be themselves to live who they were created to be. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's not the path. The path is you deny yourself. You find your identity in me, not in sex, not in anything else. You find your identity in me. That's countercultural. Look at this last one. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better. I hope this is metaphorical. (laughs) It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. Like, I can't make this stuff up. These are not my words. This is what Jesus says. You need to make a choice. I need to make a choice. Jesus' call is countercultural. It is extremely different than the world in which we live. And he says you need to be distinctly different. Even Kanye West gets this. Like, have you guys been following Kanye? So I, look, I know this sounds crazy, 52-year-old guy following Kanye. But Kanye West, Kanye's a a musician, he's a rapper, he's a clothing designer, he's married to Kim Kardashian. It's sad that I know all these things. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, I got somebody nodding over here vigorously that it is sad that I know these things. Um, But Kanye, Kanye's become a Christian. This is awesome. Kanye's become a Christian. He has these Sunday services now. I don't know if you read about his Sunday services, but in the LA area, Kanye has these Sunday services where he goes kind of off into remote areas and they kind of have these worship gatherings. Well, Kanye at one of these, I call him Kanye, we're kind of tight. (laughs) Um, So Kanye at one of these worship services, look what he says. This is Kanye. Let's not be concerned with the opinions of men at all, only the opinion of God. I know we say this is the culture, that is the culture. To be radically in service to Christ is the only culture that I want to know about. Amen. Like Kanye gets it. Kanye just became a Christian and Kanye gets it. 
We are called to be radically different than the culture that we live in. Jesus' voice is the only voice that you should listen to. I don't care what culture says. I don't care what white, white, Western, white, Anglo culture says. Yes, there's some good things about Western, white, Anglo culture, but there's some bad things about it as well. You know what? I don't really care what African-American culture says. Yes, there's some good things about African-American culture, but there are some things about African-American culture that do not line up with Jesus. The point is, is all cultures are secondary at best to the culture of Jesus Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? Jesus is the only voice. Jesus is the only voice that matters. We are called, he calls us to be distinctly different different than the culture or cultures in which we live to be set apart, to be holy, just like Abram. So now let's dig a little deeper. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It's found on page, let me find what page, 938. Hope you're following along. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the rack in front of you. Grab the Bible, follow along. I love saying that. 938, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Here in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul affirms God's call to be distinctly different and he warns against compromise. Now here, 2 Corinthians, this was a letter originally written to the church in Corinth. Yes, this letter is written to you and to me as well, but Paul originally writes this letter to a specific church in the city of Corinth. That church was having trouble. They were compromising with the culture around them. They were assimilating into the culture around them. In essence, the church in Corinth was becoming more like the culture in which they lived. They were not living distinctly differently for Jesus. Some of the church, some of them were engaging in sexually immoral practices. They were sleeping with people that they shouldn't be sleeping with. Some of them were even engaging with prostitutes. Some of them were, were ignoring their marriages. Some of them were grandstanding over other believers. Some of them were abusing communion. Some of them did not even believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The bottom line is this church in Corinth was not distinctly different from the culture around them. So listen to what Paul writes to them and to us, beginning in verse 14. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Amen. Now look first at verse 17. Verse 17 is the main theme for this morning. It's the main theme of the passage that I just read. Come out from them and be separate. Because you are a child of God, you need to be holy, separate, 
come out from them and be separate. This is what we are saying this morning. This means that you need to be distinctly different. Now, the theme we found in the middle of the text, verse 17. But Paul starts the passage with verse 14, with explicit instruction. Look what he says, verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Being holy, being separate, being distinctly different means that we are not to be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, some of you are sitting, maybe many of you are sitting there thinking, I have no idea what it means to be yoked with someone. Doesn't sound too good. Not quite sure what it means. You see, what it means to be yoked is it, it speaks of, it, it, it's, it's a term about animals and, and bearing loads. You see, a yoke is a wooden bar that is placed across the back of two animals so that they together can bear a load. So the instruction is here, don't put two different kind of animals together. It doesn't work. The NIV here the NIV kind of has the idea, it could be more literally translated, this word yoke could be more literally translated, differently yoked or unequally yoked. You can't put two animals together that are of different sizes, of different species, or of different temperaments because they don't work well together. Think about it, if you put a small ox with a very large ox or a little donkey with a really big donkey, they don't work together. They just kind of go round and round and round and round in circles because they're not meant to go together. So the instruction is do not be yoked together with unbelievers because instead of working together, you're going to end up being at odds with each other. Paul is instructing the Corinthian church to be set apart as believers because certain forms of collaboration and or partnerships with unbelievers just won't work. Which begs the question, which ones? But before we answer the question, which ones... Let's answer the question, why? Why don't these relationships work? Paul offers us five reasons why believers cannot be yoked together with unbelievers, but really they're all just the same reason stated in five different ways. But each of the reasons kind of adds a bit to the argument. They come in the form of five rhetorical questions. Five rhetorical questions that really aren't meant to be answered because the answer is so obvious. But I'll give you a clue. The answer to each of the questions is nothing or none. The first question is found in the second half of verse 14. First question, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? The answer, nothing. Righteousness and wickedness are direct opposites. Righteousness seeks to conform to the character of Jesus, while wickedness ignores Jesus and his commands, and evenly, actively opposes Jesus in his commands. There can be no compromise between righteousness and wickedness. There is no middle ground. Second question, what fellowship can light have with darkness? Answer, none. No fellowship with light in darkness. The kind of light in darkness that Paul is talking about here is a spiritual light in darkness, and it is moral in nature. Light refers to truth and holiness, and darkness refers to error and evil. 
Christians are people who have transitioned from moral darkness to spiritual light. Jesus is the light of the world, and as followers of Jesus, we are attracted to that light. People who do not follow Jesus, who do not believe, are repelled by the light of Jesus. They want nothing to do with Jesus. Third question, what harmony is there between Christ and Satan? If you're reading the NIV, it says Belial. This is a New Testament term or name for Satan. Paul is asking what Jesus and Satan have in common, and the answer is nothing. There is nothing in common between Jesus and Satan. No common ground, nothing in common. Fourth question, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Now, this question is a bit more difficult because we all have some things in common with unbelievers. We work with unbelievers. We go to school with unbelievers. We have unbelievers in our family. There are even, let's be honest, there are some principles and things that we do hold in common with unbelievers. So what the question really is here is what does a believer have in common spiritually with an unbeliever? And the answer is clearly nothing. In fact, We have two very different parents, God and Satan, different motivations, different goals and objectives, and different destinations. You see, a believer and an unbeliever are very, very different, or at least they ought to be. Fifth question, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? None. There's no agreement. Even this idea is crazy. To set up a man-made idol in the temple of God in Jerusalem would have been the greatest form of sacrilege and blasphemy. It just wasn't done. But Paul here is actually talking about a different temple. Look at verse 16. He is talking about you and me as followers of Jesus. He says, we are a temple of the living God. As believers, God is in us, which means we are the temple of God. That means God is in us, which means we take God everywhere we go and we involve him in everything we do. You want to think about that for a moment? Because you are the temple of God, you take God everywhere you go and you involve him in everything you do. You see, with these five rhetorical questions, Paul is driving home the truth that there is a huge difference between believers and non-believers, between Christians and non-Christians. And as a result, following the call to be distinctly different means that when we believe in Jesus, we are not to be joined together inappropriately with those who do not believe in Jesus. Which then leads us to the hard question of application. What does it mean for you and what does it mean for me? But before we talk about application, I do want to make one thing clear. 
when we talk about being distinctly different as followers of Jesus, when I am up here encouraging you to be distinctly different because that's what God calls us to do, I want to make sure that you understand that I am in no way saying that we as followers of Jesus are superior to those that do not follow Jesus. I am not saying that we are superior and they are inferior. I am not saying that we are in any way better than they are because that is not true. We are just called to be distinctly different and we are called to be distinctly different because God commands it of us and it is honoring towards God. We are also called to be distinctly different because it will go better for you. When you are distinctly different, ultimately you end up experiencing the blessings of God. And thirdly, we are called to be distinctly different because by being distinctly different, we offer hope to a world that lives in darkness and is experiencing the pain and the hurt and the destruction of sin. And if you can live a distinctly different life, you offer hope of the blessings that God can provide if they will just turn to Jesus. So understand, we are not superior. We are not better. We are just called to be distinctly different. Okay, now the application. First application, no yokes. No yokes, write it down. It's clear. To be distinctly different, to be separate, no yokes. Look what it says. Do not be yoked together with an unbeliever. Now that leads to the question that's on everybody's mind. So what is a yoke? Is a business partnership a yoke? Is a union membership a yoke? Is a date with a non-Christian a yoke? Is a good friendship a yoke? Now we need to be careful here because historically this verse has been used to completely separate from the world around us. This verse has been used by many Christians throughout history to live in a Christian bubble. And that is not at all what this verse is saying. And I'm going to get to that in our next application. But the first application, no yokes. So not all relationships are yokes. Clearly not all associations are yokes. But yokes have two characteristics by which we can define them. Two characteristics of a yoke. Number one, a yoke is not easily broken. When that wood bar is placed over the animals and they are strapped in, the animals cannot get out from under that yoke. They are tied into the yoke. The yoke is a permanent relationship that the animals can do nothing about. Yokes are not easily broken. And even when they are uncomfortable, even when they are difficult, the animals that are underneath the yoke need to try to work together. That is why the church has always applied this text to marriage. Marriage is a yoke. It is a relationship that is not easily broken. So a Christian should not marry a non-Christian. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says essentially the same thing. And he says, you must marry someone who, quote, belongs to the Lord Close quote. So Christians should only marry Christians because we do not want to be unequally yoked. But also in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that if you are a Christian and you are married, currently married to a non-Christian, you should stay in that relationship. 
and you should pray for that spouse. And it's making the point. Yokes are not easily broken. So if you're in that type of relationship, stay in that marriage. You see, what Paul is trying to say here, what he's telling us is stop forming yokes. Stop entering into situations where you are unequally yoked with an unbeliever. And that's marriage. Now, I know, I know this is hard. I know that there are feelings involved. I know that there can be love involved. But there is a reason. When two animals are unequally yoked together, it doesn't go well. It doesn't work well. It's difficult for both of the animals. It's the same way in relationships. If you're unequally yoked with a non-believer in marriage, there is going to be pain. There is going to be difficulty. There is going to be hurt. It is going to be very difficult to work together. And life will likely be miserable. The second mark of a yoke is that it constrains someone. It constrains someone. It does not permit independent action. In a yoked relationship, you need to comply with the wishes of the person that you are yoked to. So as you think about the other relationships, as you think about any relationship in your life that you have with a non-Christian, the question to ask whether you should continue to be in that relationship is, am I constrained to follow, am I constrained from following Jesus by this relationship? By being in this relationship, does it keep me from following Jesus? By being in this relationship, does it keep me from obeying Jesus? And if that's the case, I would encourage you to consider that that relationship is an unequal yoking with an unbeliever. Because there are some people that you just should not be friends with. Some people that you just cannot have a relationship with because they are keeping you from following and obeying Jesus. Second application. So first application, no yokes. Second application this morning is we need to be about our father's business. We need to be about our father's business. When we choose to be distinctly different, look what God says to us. Look in verse 18. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. If you believe in Jesus, the truth is, is that you are God's son or you are God's daughter. You are a child of God. Just like Jesus is a child of God. And Jesus came and said and told people that he was all about his father's business. So we should be all about our father's business, which means that we should be all about trying to seek and to save the lost. Yes, we are called to be distinctly different. We're called to be set apart. We're called to be holy. We're called to view that list of things. We're called to view them differently than the world views them. Yes, we are called to be different, but we are not to live in a Christian bubble. We are not to 
completely separate ourselves from the world around us. This passage does not mean this. It cannot mean this. Just one chapter earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul instructs each one of us to be ambassadors for Christ. We're to be ambassadors for Christ to reconcile people to God. It has in mind with it the idea that we are from a foreign country, that we are travelers, that we are wanderers, that we are strangers, never at home, never truly in the place that we are going to be comfortable. Yet God calls us to be ambassadors to the land that we live in to reconcile people to Jesus. We cannot live in a Christian bubble. Look how Jesus says it. Jesus has the same kind of idea and concept from Matthew chapter 10. He says, I am sending you out like sheep among the wolves. I am sending you out like sheep among the wolves. You do not have the opportunity to live in the sheep pen. You actually have to leave the pen and go out and be among the wolves, which creates quite a dilemma for us, doesn't it? We have to avoid the two extremes. We cannot live in a Christian bubble, yet we have to be distinctly Christian, out and out Christian. So the balance we have to strike is we have to recognize that we have to be in the world, yet not of the world. We have to be in the world, which means we have to engage the people around us. We have to make friends with those that don't believe in Jesus. We have to invite them into our houses. We have to go into their their houses. How else are they going to hear? How else are they going to know? If you're living in a little Christian bubble, they're not going to hear it from you. And God says, I'm sending you out like a sheep out among the wolves. Yes, you need to be distinctly different. You cannot think like them. You cannot believe like them. You cannot act like them. You need to be distinctly different, but you got to leave the pen. You got to get out. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, but if I leave the sheep pen and I go out there, isn't it kind of dangerous? Yes, that's the point. And that's a good thing. Look at, I know some of you are bored to death with life. You're like wondering, what in the world is this life all about? Well, this is what this life is about. You are to be an ambassador for Christ. You are to be seeking and saving the lost. That is your purpose. You have a purpose that is the highest and best use of your time. It is the highest and best purpose you could ever have in this life. Don't stay out. Get out of the sheep pen and go out among the wolves. Yes, it's dangerous. There's your purpose. But guess what happens when you leave the sheep pen? Guess what you get to see? You want to know what you get to see? You get to see God's power. Because that's where God shows up. God shows up when you leave the sheep pen. God shows up and starts working in you and through you amongst the danger. And that's what makes life exciting. That's what makes life vibrant. That's what makes life worth living. That's what gives us passion. The sheep pen is boring. Yes, it's safe, but it's boring. And you think, man, I'll get better. I'll buy myself a nicer car. I'll build a bigger house. That won't make it so boring. But again, guess what? You get the better car, and that's boring. Why? Because your purpose is to partner with Jesus in seeking and saving the lost. And it is dangerous. But that makes it fun. (laughs) Because God shows up, and he demonstrates his power. And you get to see it, and you get to experience it. As followers of Jesus, God has called you, 
and he's called me to be distinctly different than the world around us. One last encouragement as I close. I don't know anyone who is as distinctly different as they ought to be or as they should be. Each one of us struggles with compromise and assimilation. The good news is that you, as a follower of Jesus, have the spirit of God residing inside of you. Yes, there is room for improvement for all of us. So your assignment for this week is open up your heart. Open up your mind and let the spirit of God speak to you Your assignment is to listen to him and to think the way he thinks and to do what he tells you to do. Let's pray. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, Seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.